something happens, right? When you walk in a room and you act like you own the room without doing anything, but the way you carry yourself automatically sends a message to other people in that room. It doesn't matter what you feel inside. People can't see your insides, right? So cool. You're afraid. Fine. But walk, you know, walk straight up, shake people's hands firmly, look them in the eye. If all you're saying is your name in a meeting, say it with confidence. Oh yeah, I'm Nicole. Is different than Good afternoon, Attorney Nicole Martins. Nice to meet you. Welcome to The Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that empowers professional women to rise. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik. And in this show, I take you undercover into the stories and lessons that I learned, sometimes the hard way, throughout my career. I also talk with working women, leaders, and coaches to show you that no matter what your struggle is and no matter what your career goals are, you already have all the talent that you need to succeed. Welcome to season two of the show. It feels so good to be back after the break. I miss talking with you every week, but I am so excited to be kicking off this season with a very special conversation that I had with today's guest, Nicole Martins. Nicole is incredible, and I'm going to keep this intro pretty short because you're going to learn all about her, and there's some really good stuff in this conversation. I will just contextualize it by saying this one thing. I started this show because I wanted women to feel like anything was possible for them, and I wanted them to feel that way no matter what their circumstances are. No matter how difficult things might be or how hard it might seem to get to where they want to go, because I believe that when things get hard or when we're feeling stuck or we're feeling like we've hit a rock bottom, those are the situations where our power has a chance to emerge. It's not about the times when we're flying high and our career is going so well and we're getting all of the things we want. It's the times when we feel like we've been knocked out and thrown on the ground and everything inside us wants to give up, but somehow we're able to tap into this little glimmer of optimism. It's like a little spark inside of us that says, maybe I can lift myself up from this. And even though we might want to stay on the ground after we feel like we've been knocked down, we know that we have the strength within us to lift ourselves up and keep moving forward. That is what this conversation is about. I was blown away by Nicole, and I think you will be also. I'm so excited for you to meet her. And with that, let's get into the conversation. The first thing I wanted to ask you is to introduce yourself. So tell listeners who you are and a little bit about what you do. Sure. My name's Nicole, and I'm an attorney. Uh, I specialize in estate planning and civil litigation. It's been a long road to get here, but I'm really excited to be here. And if there's anyone I can help along the way or kind of give some pointers, I'd be more than happy to do that. I have a feeling that there are a lot of people that you can help along the way. And you have a little bit of um, an atypical career story or career journey. And so I would love for you to share more about it, maybe starting with where and how you grew up. Sure. So my parents are actually originally from Brazil. So they came here. Um, I was born here in the US. And my parents did a lot of really immigrant related type jobs that you would traditional jobs, they did a lot of cleaning jobs and painting. So we had 
a really simple and humble upbringing, but it was a household that was full of laughter and jokes and a lot of love. And there was a lot of, you know, we believe in you and you can do this. And we came here to give you a better life. And it's so hard to talk about this part of my story because my parents have since passed. It's been several years and it doesn't matter how long it's been. It is still so hard to talk about because I miss them and I love them and I try to honor them and everything that I do for all the efforts and the sacrifices that they made. It's a lot of great memories too, but it's still just really tough to talk about. So now that we got that out of the way. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they shaped such a huge part of not just you, who you are, of course, but how you think about yourself. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a perfect um, description of it. I mean, really everything I am, I, I feel like is, is, is tightly woven into who they are and what they wanted and, and um, you know, what they wanted for me. So it's a huge part of my story. It's something that I always look at to kind of keep me going mostly in a happy context. I mostly laugh and, 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 and joke around a lot when I think about my parents, but it's also sad to me. So sometimes I cry as a result as well. I'm, I'm a human, right? I'm a human being. And so it is what it is. <laughs> I agree fully. And I actually think, you know, one reason that I'm very grateful and appreciative of your openness and your willingness to share this is because I think a lot of the times when it comes to talking about our careers and career advice, we really do separate what's going on on maybe a personal level from all of the advice and all of the discussion around going after our dreams and what it takes to get there. And I think sometimes we're doing ourselves a disservice in doing that. Yeah, so the it's a really tough professional world that we live in in the sense that you are expected to have your professional hat on and not really mix that or wear the other hat, which is your personal st- life, right? And it doesn't matter what's going on, what what has happened or what what's going on in the present. You really shouldn't mix the two. And we say all the time, you know, when you get home from work, leave, the, your, leave your work at work. The truth be told, we spend most of our time at work, right? And so it's more difficult to do that. Um, and sometimes you you want to bring stuff home and talk about it and deal with it. And that's okay. I think that that's more okay than it is bringing your personal life into your work life. And so I struggled with that for a really long time when I was going through my mom who was sick and then dealing with taking care of her, being in school, then interviewing for jobs. And then I lost her and then I got a job and then I lost my dad and having to kind of leave those things. Actually, I was never able to. I mean, I, I straight up cried in a job interview with a judge one time because he asked me, why my graduation date had changed. And it had changed because I took a semester off to go be with my mom when she was in the last stages of her of her disease. And so as a result, the graduation date had changed. And I had applied for the job before that change happened. And so when I interviewed months later, uh, and he asked me, I actually started crying in an interview with the judge, who was very, very nice and compassionate. And told me the story of his wife who had recently passed as well, leaving back two little girls. He later sent me a handwritten note saying I didn't get the job, but it had nothing to do with with how the interview went, which was really nice. But I think that that's the exception, right? So although that was a really pleasant experience after that, I realized that I just, I don't have control of my emotions when it comes to my parents all the time. It just sneaks up on me. You know, I can't really help it. 
And for the longest time, trying to avoid it made it worse until I just said, you know what? This is part of who I am. It's part of my story. Everyone in the world has parents, whether they're good relationships or not, whether they're still alive or not. And so people can relate. And if they can't, that's okay. You know, that's not really my problem to, um, to fix. That's, that's other people's perception. And, and that's okay. I'm okay with however people feel or think about it, but I've learned to accept it. And it is what it is. So sometimes I cry when I talk about my parents. And that means sometimes it's in a job interview. Sometimes it's on a podcast. Sometimes it's at a store when I'm talking to a stranger and she tells me a cool story about her daughter. And so uh, I've learned to embrace it, but it is a very difficult thing. It was so hard for me to do that. But once I was able to, I think that people respond differently when you embrace your realness. And that goes for both in your personal life and both for me professionally as well. I feel that when I tried, there were times that I, I cried uh, around coworkers and I tried to mask it with a cough attack, hand to God. I tried to pretend like I was just having a coughing fit that made me look even crazier. And people just kind of, you know, eye rolled in this awkward dancing around, shuffling. Let's just get out of the lunchroom while she's doing this weird thing. And then after that, you know, after some time, I just said, you know, what's the point? And so I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm really sad. Like, you know, my mom passed and sometimes it still makes me. And then people are like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You've done great. I'm sure she'd be proud of you. Like that's much less awkward than people shuffling around you pretending to have a cough attack, right? So I've just kind of learned to own it. And I think that (laughs) if I could give one piece of advice in terms of mixing personal and professional, if something like that comes up and there's absolutely no way to avoid it, just like for me, there's no way for me to avoid the crying when I talk about my parents, but it's not all the times. So whenever it is avoidable or unavoidable, I should say, then I own it. Yeah, I think that people, I mean, first of all, I've cried at work too. And I think it's, you can feel very alone when it's happening. And I guarantee there are so many people that have experienced that or have been in situations where they're trying to hold it back or trying not to cry. And I think seeing someone like you who's very powerful and confident, and we'll talk more about this and we'll talk more about your career, but who's built such a successful career, it's it normalizes it. And I think it, it that's the whole point of this show and that's what I'm trying to do. It shows people that this is okay and that this isn't this isn't a sign that you have a limitation or that something is wrong. And that's why I'm so thankful for you opening up and sharing about it. And I'm super excited just to hear more Um, I want to talk all about your experience in law school. And I also want to talk about your upbringing and how you you built your career largely from the ground up. Like you didn't have so many of the privileges that a lot of people have with parents who have kind of walked a similar path to their kids and can can really push their kids along and give them like the fancy education and all of these things. And it, it seems like you had some evolution and a moment where you started to realize that those things were accessible to you, even though you didn't necessarily have some of those privileges. And I would love to hear about that. Yeah. So I think at some point, once I, um, before I got into law school, I had taken a position with a developer in Orlando and I was an international trade show representative for this developer. And so I got to travel all around Europe, basically brush elbows with some really, really wealthy people that had a million, two, three, four, five, seven million bucks to invest, didn't really know what to do with it. And my developer had me going to these trade shows to try to recruit and entice, you know, these, these investors into investing in his development in Central Florida. 
And I was really, really, really excited about the opportunity to travel and see the world because I had traveled, but not nearly as far and wide as, as, as the countries I'd be seeing on that year trip or uh, employment. And so I was excited about that, but I was absolutely terrified because I never had really met anyone that was wealthy or had any kind of conversations with them. And here I was going to try to tell them, come back to Orlando, meet my boss and invest all these millions, which seems so unreal to me, right? Coming from such humble beginnings and I was just out of college. So I really didn't have any exposure to this level or the sophistication of people. And so I had kind of formed this idea that they were, you know, an alien that would have this great lifestyle that I could never relate to. I would not have nothing to talk to them about. And I'm just this kid. I was 22 years old. And I just, I was just all out of sorts with myself in terms of how am I going to do this? Right. But I said yes to the job because I wanted to travel. And that to me at the moment was more important than how intimidating the process was. And I thought, I'll just, I'll figure it out when I get there. And I, I visited on a regular basis, 15 different countries throughout this year, basically lived out of my suitcase, different hotels. I couldn't remember the names of the hotels. There were so many of them. Uh, it was so much fun. And what I learned is that everything I felt insecure about was kind of silly because at some point, and I don't know if it was six months or seven months or maybe 10 months into the job, the one-year contract that I had, but at some point, I just realized that the majority of the people I'd been talking to were just regular people with a lot of zeros in their bank account. They were just <laughs> people who wanted to be happy and healthy and they wanted to figure out how they're going to raise their kids and they wanted to figure out the best schools. They wanted to figure out just things that anyone in any part of the world would want to do. And so that to me normalized like, oh, okay. I mean, they're wealthy people, but they're people, period, right? And so that was kind of an aha moment for me. I thought, you know, coming from a completely different background than these people, different countries, different cultures, different relationships, different social economic status. I mean, different political views. If I could relate to these people who also were significantly older than me and I could have a really good and charming and real conversation with them and we could talk about things that were either politics or beer or whatever it might be and, and I can relate to these people, then I just thought, okay, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot to be nervous about. And I kind of use that going forward, right? I mean, most situations where I find I'm very intimidated or uncomfortable or out of my comfort zone, those things are okay. And you acknowledge that. At least that's what I try to do. I, I acknowledge those feelings. I don't just brush them under the rug and think, oh, you're silly. You're crazy. You're, I don't berate myself for feeling those things. I acknowledge them and I just go on and do what I need to do anyways. I think that shift of like when you stop seeing yourself as different or when you stop thinking like, oh, this way of being or existing is somehow not accessible to me. I think that's so important because when I think about closing the gender gap, right, more female leaders, more women at the top, we need more women to see that as available to them, regardless of their starting point, right? If it's only an elite subset of people that feel like they can rise to the top, that's not enough, right? That's not going to get us there. And so I think it's really powerful to hear how you were kind of able to see yourself differently. And that's something that I really wish upon as many women as possible, which is to see that what might feel not possible or not accessible actually could potentially become accessible. 
I agree. I think there's no disputing the numbers and the studies that have been shown of women in leadership position versus men in leadership positions, right? But also that that's changing. And I think that that's important for so many reasons. One of the things that you touched on, right, that women need to see this as accessible as possible for them. But even if there wasn't a visual representation of this, if there's an internal shift and an internal belief and desire and want to do that, it can absolutely and will absolutely happen. I'm nodding my head so vigorously right now. I'm in total agreement. I'm curious then how you found yourself with the decision to go to law school from that other position that you were just talking about. Well, actually, I was supposed to go to law school and not take that position. I had applied but didn't get into the schools that I wanted to go to. So as a backup, I thought, well, I'll just travel for a year. I'll reapply next year. So I was actually, I kind of always wanted to go to law school. So when I was a kid, my mom did a lot of housekeeping work and she had lots and lots of multimillionaire clients, right? So she was kind of the head boss of the maids of the house, if you will. And so during the summers, I would go and spend the summers at these magnificent homes with 15 bedrooms and two yachts parked out back and just really, really neat experiences. And and the butlers and people, I would kind of just boss around as though I lived there. I did not. Uh, And it was a lot of fun, right? I mean, the pools with all, it was like a little mini theme park in the backyard with slides and stuff. So it was a lot of fun for me. But my mom always made a point to say, this guy is a doctor and that house over there is a teacher's house. She did you know, not just multimillionaire clients. She had other regular everyday clients as well. Um, and this guy over here is an attorney. And the attorney was like the nicest guy I'd ever met who had a jar filled with dollar bills and coins. And every time I'd come over and he was home, Or if he knew I was going with my mom, he would specifically call and instruct me to take out however much money I could fit in one hand. And for, you know, five, six, seven year old, that was a lot of money. And so he was the coolest guy ever. And I thought, well, what does he do? He's a lawyer. What kind of lawyer is he? He's a trial lawyer. I'm like, okay. And that's it. That's kind of how I decided I wanted to be a lawyer because this really cool guy with an amazing house who let me take handfuls of money from a jar, that's how I decided I wanted to be an attorney. I had no idea at the time what that was, but I just stuck to it, right? And that was kind of the visual representation of success that I had at a really young age. And as time went on, I understood more of of what attorneys did. So I, in high school, I was actually in a magnet law school program because I wanted to continue on that path. I volunteered for a program for four years called Orange County Teen Court in Orlando, where I was, it's a diversionary program for first time offenders. So uh, kids between the age of 10 and 18, if they're still in high school, uh, they get arrested. They have the opportunity to go through this program and basically go through a trial, you know, with a real jury made up of teenagers who are volunteers, a real judge who volunteers his time, and then teen attorneys. And we're also we were also volunteers. And so I was a teen attorney for four years. And I thought, that's it. This is what I want to do with my life. And I went to college with the mindset of I'm just going to do whatever I need to do to get into law school. And then I went to law school. And so I was kind of the the kid that always knew what she wanted to do even before she even knew what the career was. Uh, it just so happened that whatever it turned out to be, meaning uh, what it, whatever it meant to be an attorney turned out to be, oh, yeah, I want to do that. And and here I am. And once you were in law school, did did you experience any kind of pushback or roadblocks or, you know, things that you had to mentally overcome to kind of stay in that headspace of like, I want to build this big, successful career in law and this is where I'm headed? Oh, gosh, yes. Law school was horrendous. I hear people talk fondly about law school and how they had fun and they did it somewhere abroad or they might have done some really cool clinic. And 
my experience was not like that at all. I mean, I, if I could erase that time, <laughs> I would, it was awful. So two and a half weeks after I started law school, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and I was in Michigan. My mom was in Florida. And so I spent the first year and a half going back and forth to attend treatments and just help out my mom. My brother is an officer in the military. He was away and he just, just didn't have the ability to be home. He was out of state uh, doing different kinds of trainings and things and military doesn't just let you go whenever you want to go. Right. So he didn't have the ability or the, or, you know, the luxury of coming home. And so it kind of all fell on my back and I was happy to do it. Um, after that first year and a half, well, during the first year and a half of law school, I never once stepped foot in my school's library. And if there's anyone listening that's either ever gone to law school or understands what that means, usually you live in your school's library for the forever, right? Until you finish. But for the first year and a half, I didn't even, I seriously like never stepped foot into the library. And so I, I studied on planes. I studied while my mom was in uh, treatment, doing her chemo in doctor's offices and hospitals. I mean, I, I just, I never stepped foot into uh, the library. So my first year was was a little crazy. And she passed away after that time. And I went back and I had racked up a massive amount of credit card debt because of the traveling and trying to help her out. And so I was like, well, now I need to get a job. And again, a lot of people don't work. I mean, if they're working, it's for credits. Uh, it's kind of for like an experience thing. It's not really for money thing. And I was able to get a well-played well-paid clerkship at the time at a, the biggest defense firm in Detroit. And I worked making, I can't remember, it was like 15 or 17 bucks an hour. But at the time, back in 2010, 2008, nine, nine or 10, that was, I mean, that was big money, you know, and especially for someone who hadn't had an income for some time. So I did that. And that was really hard. I worked on the weekend or I took classes on the weekends and at night and worked basically 30 hours a week while still going to law school. So that was really hard. Um, right at the tail end of my law school career. I mean, it just gets better and better. I'm laughing because it's almost surreal hearing myself tell the story out loud. Uh, at the end, the tail end of law school, uh, I was married while I was in law school. I got divorced and it was a nasty divorce and that was difficult, right? But um, I survived that. And then just when I thought I was coming up for air and I was just trying to figure out, okay, let me take the bar and you know, am I going to take it in Michigan? Am I taking it in Florida? And just really trying to decide what I was going to do with my life the next big step anyways, um, after the divorce, my dad died. And so uh, just to mix things up even more, and I was just like, all right, I'm going to go back home. That's what I'm going to do. I packed up. I put everything I could fit in my car. I drove. I only stopped for gas. I came to Florida. I was able to get a position at a in-house counsel at a, uh, an aviation company. It's actually a Brazilian aviation company. And it was great experience, but I just I just needed to get my foot back in in Florida. And so that's what I did. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it wasn't what I dreamed of doing, but it was kind of a means to an end. And once I, once I settled in Florida and I kind of regrouped from everything that had just happened, uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to sit and I'm going to take the bar. And I passed. And then it was time to figure out what I'm going to do for work. And, you know, people were telling me I was crazy thinking I was going to make the amount of money I wanted to make. And I thought, nope, you guys are crazy. Um, I didn't have the litigation experience other than the clerkship that I'd done in Michigan, but not as an attorney. And I was applying for positions that were way over um, my level of experience. And I didn't care. So I knew that I couldn't compete with people that had gone to local or Ivy League schools, you know, some really good local schools like University of Miami, University of Florida. Those are amazing, amazing schools. 
I couldn't compete with those because I didn't do very well in law school. Because as you can imagine, my focus was on a whole lot of other things and not my education. Um, I managed to scrape by with uh, B minus C plus average, which for me generally would be pretty crappy. But again, considering everything that I dealt with, I, I, I take it and I wear it as a badge of honor today. And kind of a side note, I, I didn't for a long time. I was very ashamed of the fact that I wasn't, you know, a really, really great stellar student in law school because I know I was capable of being, but I just cared more about my mom and then the divorce that I was dealing with. And then my dad, um, my school just wasn't a priority. And, uh, when I finally acknowledged that and I just thought, I just, changed my perspective. I thought, well, man, I went through all of that and I still got B's. I got an occasional A's too. I booked one class in law school and I, I passed. I did pretty good, you know, better than some other people who claim to have studied. I'm like, okay, not so bad. And so that's kind of the twist that I put on it because that was the reality, right? And so rather than go into interviews and hang my head low and say, oh, I didn't go to an Ivy League school and I don't have a 4.0 GPA or a 3.5 and, you know, all of these you know, woo is me stories. I, I went in and one interviewer asked me, he's like, well, what do you have to say about your grades? And I told him, I said, I'm damn proud of them. And he kind of looked at me like I was an alien. And I told him, I said, well, the reason I have those grades and the reason I'm proud of them is because, and I told him the story, what I just told you guys, right? A year and a half in or two weeks in, my mom got diagnosed. I spent the whole first year and a half commuting. Then I got a job. And when I look back, I realized that it was really, really hard. And I wanted to quit several times and I didn't. And I still managed to book a class. I still managed to get a couple of A's and mostly I did above average. I'm really proud of that. And the guy was absolutely floored and he was very, very excited about that. And so I think that had I gone in there with the mindset I had previously, right? Oh, well, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I don't have a 3.5, but I'm a great candidate. Or if I had made excuses, if I had tried to pretend like I am good enough, but that's not a reflection of who I am. I think that I, his response would have been completely different. Right. But, uh, again, I just, just like I, I own the tears of when I talk about my parents, I, I owned my pretty mediocre grades in some really extenuating circumstances. And I own the fact that I'm proud of it. A lot of people don't go around saying they're proud of C's, but I am, I am because of how I earned those C's, you know? And I think that that has been, for me, one of the the biggest lessons is really just being authentic and owning it. And so I think when we, when I changed my mindset, it definitely changed how people saw me and treated me as well. It's so interesting because not only did you own it, but you said you were ashamed of it at first. Like, you did have this element of like you had to push yourself up that hill and see that story differently. And I think that that's so powerful because I think a lot of times we take the negative story as true. We take for granted that it is what it is. And I think it takes a like a shitload of courage to be like, actually, this isn't the story. And I'm going to go in here and speak about this with confidence. That's harder <laughs> than going in and sticking with the old narrative. and. I just, I wonder what inside you kind of made you do that. And I'm just fascinated by that shift. I think that, and I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I don't want to feel ashamed of something that is just part of life, 
right? I mean, death, divorce, sadness, uh, missed opportunities, or you do something wrong, whatever it is, like that's part of life, bad decisions, you know, bad investment decisions, bad relationship decisions, that's all part of life. And I've always said, I don't think, I, I don't want anyone's pity, despite everything that I've gone through and how limited my, my circumstances were growing up. I don't want anyone's pity because I feel like it's the most useless feeling ever, right? It does, it gives, it, it offers nothing. So I don't want pity. And I think with that in the back of my mind, rather than have a narrative that sounds maybe like I'm looking for some pity, right? Like, oh, I, I, I yeah, I didn't get the 3.5 and I didn't do so good, but and trying to please and turning that around by, oh, but I'm going to be the best damn associate you've ever seen. I, it doesn't feel real. And I think that it's important to be real. You know, it's so easy, especially in a professional environment, to put on this facade all the time of what you're supposed to be or what you think the employer wants. But the employer is a human being, too. So is the judge that yells at you like you don't know what he's going through. So is the partner who seems to be like a big jerk, but turns out he's just got a whole lot of insecurities that you've, you know, come to understand. And then it's just, you don't take it so personally anymore. But before you come to those realizations, I think more than anything, realizing that your experiences are just part of life and it makes you real, owning that, I think other people immediately identify with that because maybe they're in a position of power and they're meant to be a certain way or they think they're supposed to, supposed to be a certain way. When someone knocks them into reality, it's just something everyone can relate to. I fully agree. And I think like it's it's kind of very there's a very strong impulse, I think, to hide our flaws, our human flaws and to hide places where we might be suffering or in pain. And I think it seems like as a culture and as a broad workplace, we're still figuring this out. Like we're still figuring out the human element of this. But I think that particularly, I believe for women, I think the drive and pressure for perfectionism can be so intense that when we come up against these difficult life circumstances or something that's really hard and just like knocking us back, I think that emerging from it with dignity and strength the way that you did, it takes a lot. It's really hard. And I think we need more stories like yours to give other people the fuel to do that because I do think our tendency, I know for me and I know for a lot of people, is to punish ourselves and to say like, oh, another breadcrumb of my failures, you know? And and don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that I've not punished myself. It doesn't mean that I've not been harsh on myself or have always been this way, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a learning process. And I think the more I've been knocked down by bad decisions, failures, just life situations, you know, like losing my parents, right? That's um, the more I learn and the more I feel like it's even more important to be authentic and, and, and stay true to your experiences because they are what set you apart. They are what make you different. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that we're, we're not just, you know, what our resumes say. We're just not. None of us are. We're so much more than that. And you have to figure out how to convey that to other people. And it's really hard to do. And so for me, What's worked is just that, just saying, finding a way hasn't always been easy, but just finding a way to be comfortable in something that otherwise feels uncomfortable, which is crying in a room. I don't think I'll ever feel comfortable doing that. But in having done that, I've realized that it's not the end of the world. Everyone's got a mom or a dad. Everyone's got a situation that they can somewhat relate to. Even if it's not crying, maybe they've been embarrassed about something else. And that that humanizes us. 
And it's, it's a hard thing to do. You're right. It's a really hard thing to do. But I think the more you do it, the more comfortable you become just being your authentic self. And I think that what that triggers in other people is that they let their guard down more because they see, well, yeah, he's just, he or she is just a human being. And so am I. I mean, we, we recognize that in each other. It's just, an, it's an easy thing. My favorite part, one of my favorite parts of your story is actually how you got some of those interviews in the first place to, you know, be able to sit in those rooms and and tell your stories to the people that you were interviewing with. You had some unconventional ways of breaking in because like you said, you didn't have the perfect resume. You didn't have the super fancy school and you're, you didn't have the grades that you probably would have had if you had had the freedom at that time to really engage like I'm sure so many of your classmates were able to. And so how <laughs> how did you get noticed? How did you get your resume to the top of the pile knowing that you weren't necessarily a top contender just based on the resume? Oh, that was just thinking outside the box. So I, like you said, you know, I, I went to Western Michigan University. So this is no Ivy League school. This is not a top tier school, great education, but not something that's highly ranked. I was competing with University of Miami, University of Florida, Florida State University, and lots and lots and lots of Ivy Leaguers that leave South Florida and come back, right? And in our, in our day and age where everything is done online, there's no opportunity to, you know, hand deliver your resume to someone that just doesn't exist anymore. And I have told everyone, I'm convinced that these, you know, apply here links, whatever that is, is just a black hole where your resume goes into and no one can ever find <laughs> it until you're, unless you're like lucky, someone happens to pick it up one day. And so I just had to figure out a way. I, I knew that someone's going to take one look at my shitty resume. Let's be real with an average to slightly above average, uh, grade point average, very little involvement in, in law school. Uh, no, not a great school, limited experience, one clerkship. I mean, I just knew it. Someone's going to take one look at that and toss it. And so I thought, well, what am I, what can I do differently? And I, you know, in every single cover letter I sent out, I said, I will follow up in seven days, whatever it was in a week. And I did every single time that I wrote that cover letter, I did. And you'd be surprised the number of people that first told me, wow, you're the first person to actually follow up. And so I would have a running list of everyone that I had called, whoever I followed up with, and whether I left a message, what day, and if I talked to someone, what they said, you know, call back in a few days, and I'd get everyone's name, I'd always try to remember names, or at least have them written down to remind people who I'd spoken with. And I wouldn't go away until they told me, yeah, we're not going to interview you. Okay, fine, come in for an interview. So I got a lot of pity interviews. I'll say that just by <laughs> following up on the phone. But one of the some of the one of the stories that I share the most that people have come back to me and said, I've done that, I've done that. So one, <laughs> I was at, um, I, I shared this at a networking event, but I really wanted to get a job, uh, or at least an interview at this firm. And I just knew that if I could get my foot in the door, I could get the offer and like life was going to be great. So I actually applied. I went through the conventional method, the black hole link of applying online to their uh, portal or whatever it was. And then I actually FedExed my resume and cover letter to the managing partner of the practice area within the firm that I was going to be applying or that I had applied to. And I explained in the cover letter that I had followed the procedures and, and, and applied online like the, the post required. But I also wanted to express directly to him why I was a good candidate for the position. And I got an interview because he had to sign the damn FedEx envelope in order to 
to open the package. And so I, I did. I was a little stalker crazy and I, I FedExed my resume to a managing partner that landed me an interview that went really well, but they ended up hiring someone within that had more experience. And then my next out of the box type of application or, or interview came from a really big firm here in Miami whose named partner, one of the named partners went to my law school. And again, my law school is not very big. It's not very well known. It's not very fancy. And I thought, that's it. That's my end to this firm. Never met the guy in my life. He went to my law school maybe 30 years before I did. But God damn it, I was going to work at this firm because it's a good firm, great benefits, and it's what I wanted to do. So I did the same thing. I, I didn't FedEx my resume to him. I, I applied through the regular channels and then I just sent him an email directly telling him in the email why I was qualified in a bullet point format and that he should not only interview me, but he should just hire me. And the next day I had an interview. The guy who interviewed me asked me at the end, so how do you know, and I'll leave, I won't say his name, but how do you know so-and-so? And I said, I don't. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, I don't know. He said, well, he, I mean, hand gave, hand delivered your, your package and said that I needed to interview you, that you were a really good candidate. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm flattered. So he said, so how do you know him? And I said, I don't. We went to the same law school and I just emailed him and told him in a bullet point format why he should hire me. And I kid you not, the guy put his hands on his desk and said, you're shitting me, right? So I said, you mean to tell me that you've never met Mr. So-and-so? And I said, I've never met him. You is, does he know someone that you know? I mean, the guy was just convinced that he was, I was pulling a favor, right? And I said, no, I just sent him an email. And I think, um, his reaction was fantastic. I loved it, but I think it speaks volumes, right? Like people don't do these kinds of things. People aren't ballsy enough to do these kinds of things, but I wanted to be a litigator, right? You got to have balls. You got to think on your feet if you're going to be a litigator. And so I just knew that that's something that a litigation attorney would really appreciate, right? And I, it didn't feel comfortable necessarily, but it worked, you know, it worked. I didn't end up getting that job either, but the job that I did land is because I followed up like a maniac and basically forced a phone interview the, the moment the, the, the uh, managing partner answered the phone. And so, yeah, be persistent and think outside the box. That's what I do. And if you have to have a little stalker status on there too, to get the job, do it. I love it so much because, and I also love that he gave you that feedback and was so taken aback by it, even if that didn't end up being the job that you got, because I think that it goes to show that you, through your actions and through your decisions and your decision to be bold, it changed the way people viewed you. People right. viewed you as this powerful person that you are, but you created that, right? You did that through your own actions. And I think that that's so powerful because I think that I think a lot of times as women, I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for how talented and strong and amazing we are. And I don't think we're we're as prone to be a squeaky wheel sometimes as our male counterparts. And I think when we start doing these things, I mean, your story is really proof to me that the world responds and that there is so much power in our hands to propel ourselves forward. Obviously, the external environment has a lot of growing to do, but it's just incredible to see that when you give yourself that fire and you tell yourself, I am worth it and I'm going to do this, it changes the way people view you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of 
one of the best shifts that I've made is, is, is exactly that is really just something I say all the time. It, I didn't obviously didn't coin the phrase, but I live by it. Fake it till you make it. You know, you're, you're afraid, you're scared. Good. Do shit anyways. Be afraid, be afraid, but do it anyways, right? Just keep going, keep moving because something happens, right? When you walk in a room, and you act like you own the room without doing anything, but the way you carry yourself automatically sends a message to other people in that room. It doesn't matter what you feel inside. People can't see your insides, right? So cool. You're afraid. Fine. But walk, you know, walk straight up, shake people's hands firmly, look them in the eye. If all you're saying is your name in a meeting, say it with confidence. Oh yeah, I'm Nicole is different than good afternoon. Attorney Nicole Martin's nice to meet you. Very different. I can't tell you how many times I've been confused for a court reporter. And, you know, it used to really piss me off. But now I it doesn't bother me. I walk in the room. The first thing I do is I hand my card and I shake people's hands, everyone who's in the room, and I introduce them with my title. And it doesn't matter how prepared or unprepared I am or how much I know or don't know or how confident I actually am. The fact that I'm walking into a room and not even giving other people the opportunity to assume anything about me and I'm just going around shaking hands. I have no idea who these people are. Could be the janitor in the room for all I care, but everyone in there is going to know I'm here for the deposition and I'm the attorney. I'm not the court reporter. You don't even have to ask me anymore, right? So that shift of doing it anyways, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to come naturally. It doesn't have to be something you feel comfortable with, but doing it anyways is going to change the way that people respond to you but then this amazing thing happens. It's going to change how you feel, right? So you feel intimidated or uncomfortable or that you're lacking confidence. But if you can give off the impression that you are confident and that you command your space, whatever that is, then over time, that feeling is going to be more natural and you're actually going to feel that, right? So then, so it's the two things. It's, how you feel inside doesn't really matter if what you're showing on the outside is confidence because the way people perceive you is very important. So they're going to treat you differently. And then you do that enough and it's going to change the way you feel yourself. And so it's kind of a win-win situation. But I think figuring that out was a huge turning point for me. And it's it's made all the difference. Now, within reason. So the caveat is within reason, right? I know nothing about aeronautical engineering. I can't walk into a meeting with aeronautical engineers and pretend to know anything, right? I can know my name and that's it. I can say my name confidently, but that's it. And so it's not, it's not a false sense of confidence in any circumstances, no matter what, right? There's, you've got to be within reason. <laughs> but even in those circumstances, what I found is if you're completely fish out of water, like you are uh, like me, an attorney in an aeronautical engineering meeting or conference for whatever reason you landed there, ask questions. People love to talk. If you ask questions about themselves, even better. Uh, how'd you get there? What inspired you? What made you want to become an aeronautical engineer? What kind of things do you do on a daily basis? I mean, just ask questions. Even that is better than kind of hiding in a corner and doing nothing, right? So know your space. But if you're in in your space where you've got a little bit of knowledge, own it, own the room own it in time, you're going to feel the way that you act. So that's my thing. Fake it till you make it. I love it so much. And even if you are a fish out of water, like you were saying, you can still have utmost 500% confidence in you as a person. Like Absolutely. you are you regardless of the circumstances. And so you're not a subject matter expert. And maybe you're feeling lost and not good. And it's kind of rattling your self-confidence, but you don't have to 
let that make you speak more quietly. And it, you don't have to make it mean anything. You have to push through that also and be like, I have my dignity because I am who I am, regardless of the situation. Hell yes. Presenting yourself doesn't change, right? How you present yourself and who you are doesn't change. The substance of who you are doesn't change whether you're in a room of lawyers, a, a, a room full of hair salons, uh, hair salons, not hair salons, but hairdressers is what I was looking for. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of context you are in, in terms of your career, if you're a fish out of water or not, but who you are, if you're true to who you are and the way you present you, yourself, that doesn't change. And I think that's what you're touching on with. And I a hundred percent agree with that. Even if you're not substantively informed in whatever setting you're in, if you still say your name with confidence and look people in the eye and shake their hands and you're genuine and and you act the way you would if you were in your element. That doesn't change. Totally. And like my view of fake it till you make it is I don't even think that you're faking it because once you decide to do it, by definition, you're no longer faking it because it takes courage to quote unquote fake it. So even if you don't feel like you've gotten there, like you are the real deal just by choosing to be bold in any given situation. I agree that it definitely requires boldness and care and, and courage really to do it. I, I would agree with that. It's doing it despite feeling uncomfortable. So to me, it, it, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag of feelings, right? Like you're trying or you're, you're putting on this outward appearance of being just fine and confident when inside you don't feel that way. So that's why to me, it's, it's, it's almost like you're faking it, but yeah, it does take some guts to kind of do that in the first place. And I think that you just got to do it. You just got to try it and do it and realize this, the shift, right? That people treat you differently and that you're going to feel differently. And then it starts becoming a little bit more natural. And one thing that I would want to say too, for people who might be, that might be a hard first step because I struggled with confidence and I know the prospect of confidently <laughs> introducing myself, like to, let's say some, a very senior partner or someone that was that was a scary leap. You can start with something smaller and you can play around with it in other situations, maybe in your personal life or maybe with someone else. And then you will feel ready and you will know then when it's time to bring that because I don't want people to feel like if they can't take this first step, they can't take any step because it doesn't really matter what your first step is, in my opinion. I would agree with that. And I think what really changed my perspective, what helped me to approach the managing partners of the firms that I worked at who would, I mean, literally not even talk to me because I was just an associate or just a clerk, right? They wouldn't even say hi to me in the halls, um, is the human element, right? I had already lost my parents. I'd already kind of been through that. And I just thought, you know, he might be head honcho here at this office, but who knows what his dichotomy is like when he gets home, right? He might not be head honcho at home. He might have a whole lot of other issues. And so it's the human element of, yes, he or she is head honcho at the office and they're intimidating because they're busy and maybe they're short, maybe they're rude, maybe they have a reputation, maybe it's a number of things. But at the end of the day, that guy still goes to the bathroom like you and I, he still eats like you and I, um, he still has a lot of the same concerns and worries and issues to deal with in life and his everyday life that a lot of other people have too. And for me, I've, I've just kind of been able to see that in the immediately, right? Yeah, he's he's a senior partner and he's known for throwing books and being a jerk. 
but I've done nothing to him and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say hi. I'm going to walk in and talk to him because I actually need to talk, to talk to him about a case. And if he's dismissive or rude or whatever, that's his problem. It's not mine. But he, aside from being a partner, is just a human being. Absolutely. Yeah. I I had a realization too. I realized like passing people in the hallway at work, some people I would say hi to. And then if they were like too senior or too powerful or whatever, I wouldn't I wouldn't say hi. And if you think about that, that's really absurd. Like if you're walking down the sidewalk saying hi to everyone, would you say hi to some people and not others? No. Right. And that mental shift is so powerful. It's it's a mental shift. It's the best way to describe it. You know, not to say that there's I, there's never a moment I'm intimidated or there's never anyone that that. No, I mean, those things still happen. Right. But it's like I said, I just I move forward anyways. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm insecure. I'm I don't really know what this guy's going to do or say because he's got a reputation and he yelled at me last week. Well, too bad. I got to talk to him this week and it's a new day. So let's just get on with it. And if if he's going to be rude or nasty or not acknowledge me, then that's okay. That's not my problem. I've done nothing. He's a human being like me. Maybe he's dealing with something that, you know, is beyond his control. But I, I, I I don't think it is being powerful. I just think it of, think it, think of it as being human beings that I'm just trying to relate to. And in my circumstances, it's just they're in fancy suits most of the time, but doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. Fancy suits, maybe slightly fancier office, bigger office. Right. Um, great. Before I get into the listener question, I wanted to ask you to just talk about how your career evolved since landing that initial position and where you are today for anybody who's in your field who might be interested in hearing how you progressed. Sure. So I... Uh, was a trial attorney for a number of years. And after I had my daughter decided that I wanted to go uh, a different route. And I don't think that that was very well received at the firm that I was at. because I was making a lot of money for the firm. I was working like 17 hour days, five days a week during trials, seven days a week easily. And it was a really exciting. It was really sexy work for a really, really global client who's really well known. It was wonderful, except I couldn't really be a mom and be a trial attorney at the time. And it just didn't make sense. My husband travels a ton for work. And so I, the joke around here is that I'm a single mom, even though I'm not single. And so um, I thought, you know, in five years, five to seven years was my original goal of kind of going out on my own and opening up my own firm. And I'd never really thought about doing it anytime before my forties. And so the, my, my life plan was to open my firm at 40 work really hard for 25 years and then retire at 65, right? That was kind of like the <laughs> the big picture goal. And as things turned out, I opened my firm with no savings, with not a single damn client, with very limited means in, in every way, right? I mean, not a whole lot of support from anyone other than people maybe saying, yeah, good luck, but a whole lot <laughs> of people saying that's not going to work. You don't have enough experience. You're going to starve. You're never going to make it. You're crazy. You want to expand into a different practice area. That's nuts. I mean, you name it. And and people said it. And I just kind of walked away with my middle finger in the air and did it anyways. And so I opened my own firm this year. I'm looking to get staff because I'm really busy and I, I'm having a blast. I'm able to pick up my daughter every day from school. I still work a lot. I work late at night when she goes to bed and on weekends if I have to, but I'm doing it for me. And it feels really, really good to kind of run into these people who said I couldn't do it. And they're still miserable at their firm jobs. And I don't wish them misery. 
but they're miserable and they didn't have the balls to go out and do something like this. And so the fact that I did, and I'm still figuring it out, but it's working and it's working a whole lot better than I ever thought possible, but kind of another pointer, if you will, is not, not necessarily a pointer, but maybe living my truth of fake it till you make it and, and be afraid, but do it anyways. I was terrified. I'm still a little afraid. Don't get me wrong, but I'm doing it. And I'll summarize that point, my fear with two things. One story of a good friend of mine who actually is a, a mentor and who I now co-counsel on cases. This is someone who's incredibly well-respected in the legal community, um, who's become more than just a mentor, but one of the few people that said, you can do it. And I told him, I said, his name's Jermaine. I said, Jermaine, I don't have a dollar to buy anything. I leased my firm computer, okay? I didn't have money to buy a computer. And he said, he does rock climbing, right? He's an avid rock climber. And he said, sweetheart, you don't need a net. There's this famous rock climbing guy. I, I don't know who he is, but he said, this guy, you know, climbs all kinds of peaks and valleys and he doesn't use a net. Well, he was going to rock climb, I think somewhere in the Grand Canyon. And the local government said, no, you can't do it without a net. You've got, you've got to have a net for security purposes in case you, you know, you slip or something and, and, and we don't want you to die. And the guy had to go through some extra channels to not get the net. And he said, I prefer that. Because if I have a net, I'm not going to be as careful in my placement of my hands and feet because I'll know that I'll be all right. If I don't have a net, I'm going to give it my all and I'm going to be hyper focused. So he said, girl, you go on and do your thing. Screw the net. And so that's it. That uh, no net, no net. Sometimes um, you're more focused and more resourceful and you make do with what you've got when you don't have the safety or comfort of an extra bank account or a safety net. You kind of have a history of trailblazing in your career and, and doing the impossible. And I will say, as someone who went to law school and has had some exposure to the legal field, I think it's one of the hardest fields to break standards and barriers. It's not it's not as flexible and entrepreneurial as the business world. So the fact that you've been able to do all of these things is like particularly impressive as a lawyer. Thanks. It is hard. It's, it's, um, it's a rough field. It's, it's a lot of grit. You know, you gotta, you gotta be committed, not just interested. And, you know, you, so you have that litigator side to you, the lawyer side, you're gritty, like you go for it. And it's also very special to see that you acknowledge your emotions. And, you know, you've been through a lot of really difficult things. And, I think seeing that duality and seeing that polarity and seeing the strength and the fire and the intensity and also the sensitivity and the emotion, we need more female role models showing us all of that because there are just way too many that are giving us like one dimension or maybe one and a half or two dimensions, right? And and we're not, a lot of us, I know for me and a lot of women, we're not seeing the kind of role models that are inspirational to us, that that we see all of ourselves in. And so it's it is really special for me, and I think for a lot of people who are going to listen to this to see all of that and say like, yeah, I can be feisty. I can be all of these things. And I'm also human and and like through feeling my emotions and actually doing that authentically, that builds my strength. And, and we don't have enough of that narrative out there. And so it's one that I'm I'm really overjoyed to hear. Thank you. I agree. I don't I think that there's a lot of one dimensional 
role models, right? Or polar opposite types of role models. And I think it's, it, it also serves people to grab what is useful to them from several different people. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be anything to anyone. I'm just trying to be better for myself. I, I really, really try to be a better version of myself all the time. And for me, that means being more authentic and acknowledging, you know, all of my flaws and everything that's come along my way, because it is, it, it, it's the makeup of who I am. And I was not able to really be anything of substance without actually acknowledging and owning that stuff, right? I wasn't my authentic self, which made me look or feel insecure. And when I started owning my crying about my parents or, yeah, not having, you know, a stellar academic record or, you know what, I, I dropped the ball. I, I've done, I, I, I've done that a lot of times. And I've always, I've always said, you know, even if I'm not sure if I'm wrong, I'll take the blame. If I'm wrong, I immediately try to find a solution to make it right, whatever that might be. And I don't just come to a superior, to a client, to a boss, to my husband with a problem. I try to come with the problem and here's what I'm going to try to do to fix it. And then on top of that, well, not on top of that, I would say, but if I'm not in the wrong and I know I'm not in the wrong, I'll go down swinging. I mean, I'll, I'll lose a job. I'll lose a client. I'll lose whatever over it, but I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. And I think the only way to really get there is to be real and authentic about your shortcomings and embracing them, but also understanding and respecting your strengths as well. Absolutely. You just articulated that so perfectly. And I think you and I have a really similar view of that. So it feels good to hear hear you articulate something that is often just like a blurb of thoughts in my mind. I'm going to ask you the listener question. And then we'll do the closing questions. I'm super excited for this. So the listener for this week's episode asks, my manager, who is a friendly middle-aged man, sees himself as a mentor figure to me. But his mentorship feels to me like mansplaining, especially because I know exactly what I'm doing and know that I'm doing it well. I also feel like I have to suggest things to him multiple times before he listens. And then most of the time, my ideas are twisted so that they become his ideas, which are then suggested back to me. I can't definitively say this is a gender issue, but I also don't see it happening with my male colleagues at the same level as me. I would love any advice on how to handle this. Sincerely, losing patience. This is great. So first of all, I love the fact that she says, I know exactly what I'm doing and I know that I'm doing it well. That to me says she's, she's confident and she acknowledges her strengths, right? She's respecting the fact that she's got these strengths and whoever the manager is, um, is potentially taking credit for her ideas. I, again, I would, my, my biggest thing is to be authentic in a situation like that. I would say, George, that's a great idea. It sounds a lot like the one I had last week or in the last meeting. Can you help me understand how it's different? And I think if the response, um, first of all, my experience has been in, in very similar situations when you're that forthcoming, they kind of lose their, their bearings, right? Oh, well, uh, and it becomes a, them trying to explain how it's different or why it's different. And that becomes interesting because that's telling, right? If they don't really have an answer, they're doing exactly that. They're just trying to take credit for your damn idea. So let them know that it's your idea. 
have them explain why it's different in a nice way, right? You don't want to be combative, but just be genuine. Like that sounds a whole lot like what I said in last week's meeting. Help me understand how it's different and see what the response is. Let them, let him figure out what he's going to tell you. And if it is different, acknowledge that it's different and perhaps better. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what? I hadn't thought about it, but I think that it makes the original idea a whole lot better because, right? Or I still don't understand, but it seems like we're on the same page and we think we have a lot of the same ideas. I mean, you know, maybe he won't be open to admitting that he stole your idea, which is a probable, uh, probable, probable scenario, right? In that case, there's nothing you can do. You're not going to fight him on it. I would just say, okay, well, it sounds like we're on the same page. It sounds like we think alike and just kind of move on. But every opportunity that you can to remind, and again, in a professional, we're not talking, I don't suggest it in a, in a catty way or that's my idea. No, no temper tantrum throwing, but just a genuine, hey, man, that sounds like my idea. Tell me how it's different or what do you think we can do to make it better? And if they come up with some other version of your idea, then that's great. That's what teamwork is about. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that that you are a confident person, you know that what you're doing is is you're doing it right and you're doing it well. So if your manager is coming to you with your idea ideas kind of wrapped in a in a in a red bow instead of a green bow, the one that you presented it in, tell them you realize it's the same damn bow, just a different color. <laughs> I don't know if I have like some unhealed wounds against the male species, but like hearing you talk about like painting him into a corner just like made me feel really good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. Well, that's so disarming for them. Like they don't expect it. They're not, uh, I, I can't say it, it never happens, but I would say I would, I, I would go out on a limb, a limb and say it rarely happens, right? Because as women just generally the narrative is to just play nice and you don't want to ruffle feathers and you just want to just get through the day and men and their egos we just know that they have them and you got to cater to that no hell no you know if you have an idea if it's a great idea and he's using it it, it, it's not meant as again it's not meant to be a combative thing it's really just meant to be help me understand and if you can come across sincerely in that way and I probably couldn't do that. So I'd have to step away, take a few breaths before I was over my rage. And then I, so yeah, take, take a moment if you have to. But then when you're able to be sincere, then ask. To me, it, it does a, it does uh, two things. It tells him, you know, that he took your idea and now you want him to explain how it's different. Puts him in the, in the awkward position. I think that's so helpful. Thank you so much, Nicole. No, no worries. And now for the closing questions, which are one of my favorite parts. The first closing question is about the title of the podcast, which is The Art of Speaking Up. And I love to ask every guest to share what that means to them, why they think that why they think it's important and anything else that they want to share around speaking up. Sure. I think that the title's fantastic, by the way. It's really catchy. And <laughs> I think that it kind of tags along with maybe some of the themes that we've already been talking about, right? But speaking up is not something that is necessarily easy or in our comfort zone or something that we can do naturally, because I think that we are, for a number of reasons and from a number of different sources, right, labeled and pegged as emotional and this and that and, and, and just all these labels that go along with women, but not necessarily men, right? And so speaking up, is I think a little counterintuitive to what we've been taught, what we've been 
blasted with the media and movies and, and even in school, right? And so it is even more important to actually get in the habit of speaking up. And why? Well, it goes along with the fake it till you make it, because if you are not comfortable speaking up in a meeting, if you're not comfortable saying what you need to say when someone's taking your idea or potentially bashing something that you did or being pejorative about what you've done or who you are or the work that you put out and we don't say anything, I think, first of all, it allows the opportunity to give the impression that we accept that. And two, the way that that makes you feel is something that can't really be undone, right? Just like you said, you might have some unhealed wounds with certain with a certain species. And and I think the same is true. You know, we we are conditioned to not really ruffle feathers or make noise or st- we're not conditioned to speak up. And so we kind of just, we take it and we take it. And it's just, you know, little grains of rice in size, right? But that chips away at who we are and what we want and what we believe in. And that chips away at our personality. It chips away at our self-confidence. And so my biggest piece of advice is speak up. If it scares you, do it anyways. If it terrifies you, do it anyways. And I think that my experience in not speaking up, I think a lot of people can relate to this when I say that, you know, you want to say something either to a coworker or a boss or maybe even a boyfriend or a relationship, right? And you play this conversation in your head of how it's going to go when you say this thing, right? I you know, I don't like that you talk to me like this in front of other people, whatever it might be. And you have this, oh, they're going to get mad. And you have this whole back and forth in your mind of how it's going to play out. And you know, down to their facial expressions, how it's going to go. And you get so anxious and worked up about that until, you know, you're pissed off one day, you burst into your boss's office and you tell him, I hate when you talk to me like that in front of people. And then he just looks at you like you're crazy and says, okay, I won't do it anymore. And so everything that you were worried about never came to fruition. You stressed and were pissed off and and created this whole narrative in your mind of what was going to happen. And so my experience with not speaking up, especially when I wanted to speak up, is that I stressed out way more over the fantasy that I created in my mind of how it was going to play out than in reality. And so it becomes even more important to speak up because you realize it's not that big of a deal. And even if something is ill-received, right, it's not your fault. It's not your fault and it's not connected to to you. It's the other person and you can't control other people. You can only control you. So be mindful of people's feelings when you speak to them, whatever that is, right? So whenever you're going to speak up, be respectful, right? Be respectful, be professional, be kind, be compassionate. And then how that's received, if they interpret that to mean Oh, you think I'm a jerk. Well, that's probably their insecurities coming to the surface with whatever it is that you brought to light. And you just have to be detached from that. You need to speak up because that's going to make you feel more empowered. People are going to respect the fact that you speak your mind and that you're able to do that because a lot of people aren't. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. But get to a point where you can say something. And if that means pulling someone aside, maybe start in an email, you know, say, I think nowadays it's so easy. I say this all the time. It's so easy to hide behind a keyboard. And when you get someone calling your office and saying, I want that job, or when you get that FedEx resume that requires a signature that no one else has done, it makes people look at you. So I still am a huge fan of face-to-face interaction when you're in the mind, right mindset for it. Because I'll tell you many times I've, I've spoken up and not been in the right, right mindset. And that's a recipe for disaster, right? 
So I need to take my own advice in the sense of um, taking a deep breath and cooling off before I speak up. But I think getting to the point where you can speak up is really important because it's going to change the way people treat you and think of you and look at you as someone who she's not afraid to say something. And if something's wrong and if she's saying something, oh, you know that other people are thinking it, right? Because maybe she's the only one in the group that has the, the guts to stand up and say something versus everyone else who's thinking it. It, it, it's it's a really big shift. It's a really, really hard thing to do. Maybe start with something small, whatever that might be. Maybe talking to a coworker about something that bothers you is less stressful or less difficult than going straight to your boss and, you know, asking for a raise. But you, you should still do it. Start somewhere and speak up because it's going to change the way that you feel about yourself and how people perceive you. And I think that that's just going to snowball into so much other positive changes. And, and it's a really good habit to create. So love the title. I think it's really catchy. And I think everyone should figure out a way to speak up. And the last question is just where I give you the floor. And some context is I started this show because I had some tough times in my early career. And and we've heard from you that, that you've been through your, your own challenges also. And I started the show so that I could speak to anyone out there who's going through their version of this and just let them know that things are okay and that they're awesome and and to make women feel empowered. So I like to give you the floor to share whatever you want to share to reach listeners and and send that similar message to them. So I think something I, I, I say all the time is is be afraid and do shit anyways. And so I, I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Gilbert, who's the author of Eat, Pray, Love and Big Magic. And she's just overall an incredible writer and human being. And I just, I love her to pieces. And I, I don't even remember if it was something she wrote or if it was a, a, a podcast of hers that I, I listened to, but it resonated with me so much. And I think that she articulated it in a way that I had been feeling, but couldn't put words to it, right? Which is this being afraid, acknowledging your fear, but doing shit anyways. And so what the analogy she used is so perfect. So she said, when, when you're afraid, whatever that might be, whether it's in your personal or professional life, you know, you have to acknowledge it. You can't just brush that under the rug because our feelings are all there for a reason, right? They, they serve their purpose. Her fear and what she advises, and this is exactly what I've been doing, but without having this vivid analogy in my mind is, you know, the fear is allowed to be in the car with you. At most, at most, your fear is allowed to sit in the passenger seat, but the fear is never allowed in the driver's seat. So in other words, be afraid, but keep driving, keep moving forward and don't make your decisions based on your fear. Acknowledge it, give it its space because it's there for a reason, but keep plowing forward. And that resonated with me so much. I think that before I even knew about her, before I heard or read, you know, this, um, this piece of hers, I, I had kind of done that already, but I had never really thought of it that way. And I, I kid you not, I'm in, in my day to day when I'm stuck with crap, I really don't want to make that call. I really don't want to do this. Or I, I'm terrified about this hearing because I've, I've never had this kind of a hearing before. I know I'm qualified. I know I can do it. I'm like, okay, I'm afraid because it's my first time. And this is really scary because I could lose a whole lot of money for my client if I don't get this right. But I'm going to go in as freaking prepared as I possibly can. I'm going to do everything in my power to be on my A game. And I'm going to do it anyways. I will go in with fear 
but I won't not do something because of it. Right. And so I think that that's super important. So be afraid, but do shit anyways. Just acknowledge your fear, but don't make decisions. Fear can't make the decision for you. My other saying that I've, I, I've already said a couple times, but same thing is just the fake it till you make it. Right. Is this, um, it, there's that shift. You say it's not really faking it. And, you know, it, it feels a little bit like faking to me. I'll be honest. And so I think that being able to figure out how you want to present yourself, uh, in a confident way is a hard thing to do already. But once you make that decision, just do it and people will respond in kind. And over time, you'll feel different about it too. And then two more points I want to make that to me ha- have served me really well. One being the power of our thoughts, right? And I think that everyone, everyone listening, every single person, every single woman out there is far more powerful than she thinks she is. And we're really, really more powerful uh, than we give ourselves credit really through our thought process, right? And so I look back, I was preparing for this podcast and I was looking back and if I had a graph, right, a chart where you see uh, a line for the stock market, right, the stocks maybe are really low, they start climbing, 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 maybe they plateau, they tank. When I look back on the graph, that line of my life, I see that I was really, really low for a while when I thought that I couldn't be more than what I was born into, right? I couldn't be more than just the kid of immigrants who were cleaning people. I couldn't really do a whole lot. And, and I, I feel like that that thought process of this is kind of where I am, I, I lived at that level. And then at some point I started realizing, well, I hey, I, I, I think I can go to law school. You know, I think I can do that. I want to do that. And and I started working towards that. I was invested, right? I wasn't just interested. I was invested. I was committed to doing that. And things started getting better. And when I realized all these other mental shifts that we've talked about, right, that, you know, we're just human. We're in this experience to kind of figure it all out together, but just be as genuine as possible. And I think looking back, I see that that line kind of skyrockets for me when I make this mental shift. And it's not something I really realized until before today, I think. And so where I'm at now, the line is still rising is so different from where, where it was five and 10 years ago, because I think that at about that time is when I really made this shift and writing things down for me has been key. I write down my goals and I look at them. I'll write them down 20 to 50 times every single day. And one thing we, I forgot to mention, but earlier in the podcast, we were talking about our first job. So when I landed my first job, everyone thought it was crazy for asking for the salary I wanted because I didn't have the experience. And I wrote down 55 times for eight months straight, what I wanted my salary to be. And I ended up getting my first job at exactly that amount, which was almost $35,000 higher than anyone I knew with better grades and from Ivy League schools. And so I think that there's so much power in, in our thoughts. There's so much power in what we believe and then what we write down and set out to accomplish. And that's not something you need any resources for other than a pen and a piece of paper. That's it. It's really that simple. And then the last thing that I'll leave you guys with is this. Find something that, whether it's an activity, a mantra, an exercise that inspires you and that you can do or take a glance at. And that that's the one thing that kind of propels you forward. And for me, when I was in law school, I had my contracts professor memorized a poem. 
It's called Invictus by William Henley. And I won't recite the whole thing, but it's an amazing poem. And every time I still read it, I still find so much symbolism and information in it. And so I thought, that's really cool. I want to do that. And I memorized it because it was so powerful. And this particular professor, when she she gave this um, speech in, in, in our class, was right when I had lost my mom. And so it was like the one thing that that helped keep me going because I thought, man, I need something to hang on to, right? And that was it. And it still serves till this day for me as my my biggest kick me back into gear thing, if you will, right? It's 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 one recitation of this poem for me and I have it memorized. So I don't even carry it around anymore. For the longest time it was laminated in my wallet. Now I know it by heart. But the last two lines are to me just the most powerful. And I'll share that with you. It says I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's everything to me. That's everything because we are in control of our destiny, of our future, of what we want and what we're able to achieve. And so if you speak up, keep moving forward despite your fears and know that you've got control of you and your future and you can create the opportunities for you no matter where you came from, there's absolutely no way you can fail or that you can't achieve whatever it is that you want. Holy cow, Nicole was incredible. And my conversation with her had me feeling so motivated and so inspired. And I hope that you experienced it in the same way. If it fired you up and you loved listening, please share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might benefit from some of the advice or encouragement that she gave. And if you're listening to this episode around the time that it was released, come join me on Instagram. My handle is The Art of Speaking Up, and I'm going to be posting some of my aha moments and some of my reflections and takeaways from this really incredible conversation with Nicole. A big thank you to Nicole for sharing her story on this show. And a big thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in. It feels so good to be back, and I cannot wait to catch you in next week's episode. In the meantime, I hope you're doing well, and I'll talk with you soon. Bye.